from high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. one 408 So glad you're here. So much going on. 100,000 people at least descending on Washington, D.C. in support of Israel. That's pretty cool. Where it's most of the State Department and some in the Pentagon. Uh, Pro-Iran in the Pentagon. You believe that? And uh, the State Department and among White House officials, mostly under 35, and staffers on the Hill against Israel. Do you believe this? Senator Ted Cruz in 15 minutes, Mike Pence uh, and Charlotte Pence at the bottom of the hour. So, And, of course, you. I'll get your calls and your insight. And I hope to see everybody uh, tonight at Connecticut, our R.J. Julia Bookshop, talking about Teddy and Booker T., uh, the new book that's out that uh, the whole world is talking about, according to my reports. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There was a question of humanitarian. Uh, I, I think they were very clear we can't have a ceasefire. But I don't think anyone argues for a general ceasefire. Uh, that's not going to happen. By the way, the only time we'll have a ceasefire is for the return of our hostages. Yes, and by the way, there is a mini pause going on right now, humanitarian purposes, and they are bringing over more incubators into that hospital. Israel at war. The latest from Gaza, while the Pentagon and State Department discover traitors in their midst and adversaries on their team. This is pro-Israeli Americans gather in D.C., the biggest demonstration ever. Number two. The president called you a word that because we are live in London, I am not allowed to say on television, but it starts with a P and ends with K. Uh, your response. Yeah. Listen, I understand he was irritated because I raised concerns that many, many Democrats had. And again, you know, my feeling is either get out or get going. Uh, 2024. Joe can't do it and Dems know it. I am talking re-election, but he's too bullheaded or empty-headed to realize it. The elaborate plan to aid him unmasked as Nikki Haley unveils a plan to KO Ron DeSantis and take on Trump. Number one. Anytime you put on an event, by definition, you know, you, you have people over your house, you're going to clean up the house. It's actually pretty frustrating to see that apparently the city that I grew up in was so easily cleanable for the 21 world leaders, but not for taxpayers. 100% correct. And I, I feel uh, the pain of San Francisco. Showdown or frivolous meet and greet? That's the choice the president will have to finally make when he meets with the Chinese president after begging for this meeting in San Francisco at the summit for months. By the way, the degraded city underwent a massive cleanup, but already looks like a fail. And here's why. There's a there's a Czech Republic uh, production crew, you know, reporters. They, they work for a TV station there. They were robbed at gunpoint. Lost $18,000 worth of equipment, and they got to go and do these stories. And now shooting it on iPhones. They went quickly to a Best Buy. That's the problem. I, a, a friend of mine was in San Francisco a, a year and a half ago. Parked to go into a Starbucks, came out. All the windows are smashed, and their luggage is gone. So they took it. They ended up on somebody's lawn. Thankfully, somebody called them. And then when they brought the car back, they saw all these other cars smash the same thing. The guy's like, yeah, it happens nonstop. There are no cops around. There's no enforcement on it. And that's where that's who's hosting this. So to see what they did, Gavin Newsom is a smart politician. He'd say, uh, we got to do this every day. We got to do what Rudy Giuliani did in New York and just clean up these streets 
right away the way we did it today. I don't know what they did with the homeless. They went somewhere. Maybe they went to a facility. Maybe they got some mental health treatment. I think Dr. Drew told us uh, a couple of years ago he did some studies and talked to people uh, who are homeless. And it's not because they can't pay their bills. For the most part, it's all mental illness and drug addiction. So that's what's going to be happening at the summit. Evidently, the Chinese are going to say we're going to crack down on the precursors for fentanyl. But they never do. What kind, of, what kind of enforcement will there be? What kind of leverage might we have in exchange for what? Obviously, the easiest thing for China in an oppressive society like that is to stop anything, anything, because they, have, they make up their own rules. All you have to do, punishable by death if I found you, find you with the precursors to fentanyl. End of story. We could never do that here. I'm glad about that. But they could end that in a second. So they are vulnerable economically, talking about China. They do have a declining population because of their one-child policy for decades. They are in a situation where deflation has taken over. The real estate market has collapsed. There's a youth unemployment through the roof. But they feel as though we are no longer a legitimate threat. They think we are a declining power. There are indications that we're declining, but we're not a declining power. The choices this president has made have been absolutely epically awful. Uh, From Afghanistan to not fully financing our Defense Department to letting our Navy rot and not being bothered that uh, recruiting is off everywhere except the Marines. But if you see President Biden try to do a wreath ceremony, if you watch him fall up the stairs, if you see him call the vice president the president yesterday at the White House, how worried are you as an American that he is just going to get steamrolled by President Xi? For Bob Lighthizer, he doesn't get into politics, but he knows China as well as anyone in the country. And you know who also believes that? Most Democrats. One of the superstars of the Trump administration, who, by the way, loves him and would go back. Here's what he said yesterday. Cut six. China is more aggressive than they have been in decades. And they're a real threat to this country. And unfortunately, this administration and this president do not understand that. Their policy is, is, is not in the national interest from a national security point of view, certainly not from an economics uh, point of view. Yeah. And the whole thing with China, too, while they go down the street, there's supposed to be a number of protests. Uh, they're going to be talking. By the way, we never even brought up the spy balloon. So when they were trying to set up a meeting between President Xi and the president, out comes this spy balloon across the country. It's a spy balloon. They never apologized for it. In fact, they said they want it back. We didn't shoot it down over Montana, didn't shoot it down over the Dakotas. We shoot it down over the water, and we never hear anything else from it. No apologies, but things got worse from there. They buzz U.S. assets in the South China Sea, accused of influencing Americans through TikTok. China launched a spy balloon flight that's never been explained. We find that there's been others that never been addressed. If we didn't have one enterprising reporter in Montana, would we have known about it? What I'm sad about is I think the president's priority is climate change. Protests against the president for climate change against China, for human rights abuses against China, the Israel-Hamas war. They'll probably be against Israel before Hamas. But they have huge fences down the street to protect the world leaders, which is more than a little embarrassing. They're not, they don't know what it's like to have legitimate protesters and let this, uh, dissent vo- dissenting voices have a voice in this society. But the other story is the cleanup of this city. As I mentioned, Gavin Newsom decides, I used to be mayor here. Let's clean it up. Let's not 
embarrass ourselves, and they do. It didn't stop crime from taking place with this uh, Czech journalist. Quote, they were heading at my camera. They were they were heading at my cameraman, aiming a gun at my stomach and one at my head. I'm the one of those many people who used to read Jack Kerouac's On the Road, and I was so much looking forward to visiting your city. How embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I went to San Francisco in my life twice. I'm embarrassed that they have a major summit in a declining city like this. So they lost $18,000 worth of equipment. They got to cover the story. They don't have a backup thousands of miles away. So they're shooting it on iPhones. So Gavin Newsom doubles down on tidying up the city. And it's crime-ridden. And the crime obviously is still taking place. But if they can do this for this summit, why don't they do it every day and begin to change the cycle of violence, of crime, of pestilence, of drug abuse? Here's Crystal Bailey from KTVU explaining the cleanup. Cut three. City leaders are making sure the city shines. BART doubling down by deep cleaning their stations overnight more often. Scrubbing and power washing is happening all over the city. It's noticeable how clear the streets look and how few homeless encampments there are on major thoroughfares. Public Works is installing decorative crosswalks in North Beach and Chinatown. And the Webster Street Pedestrian Bridge in Japantown was recently repainted. Why? All those things, uh, except for removing the homeless, which needs a plan, could have been done every day. Any good mayor would say we're tripling the amount of power washers we get out there. I remember they gave incentives to Rudy Giuliani gave incentives to the garbage men. If you can pick up more and you can figure if you can pick up more and do more routes, I'll give you an extra day off. He used to also give incentive. You get done earlier, go home earlier. So people wake up and they're not rimmed with garbage on all the streets. Things like that work. Coming up next, Senator Ted Cruz, author of a new book, Justice Corrupted, How the Left Weaponized Our Legal System. So glad you're here. Don't move. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Indonesia appeal to the U.S. to do more to stop the atrocities in Gaza. This fire is a must for the sake of humanity. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure on Israel right now uh, to go easy on Gaza. You know what I love? I watched uh, our channel and I watched CNN yesterday. They, the IDF brought the, the reporters deep in to the hospitals, to the children's centers, and into the not into the tunnels because they sent robots into the tunnels, but which is smart because I hear they're lethal. They, they want to lure you down there. But that's what they're up against. If you leave the tunnels and walk past the hospitals and, by the way, tunnels under the mosque too, then you left them intact. So you owe it to the Israelis who were massacred and any Arabs and Americans – I think a bunch of countries, Russians were taken. Um, You have French were taken, Brits were taken. You have nine Americans down there, one green card holder. You have a three-year-old. You owe it to them to root everybody out of of Gaza. At the same time, you don't want to see any young child being hurt. You, You don't want to see any hospital being robbed of power. And that's pretty much we're in the middle of right now. So that was Jaco Widato. He is a, uh, the Indonesian president. 
making a statement yesterday with the president right by his side. So the president's getting pressure from his own staff, from his own State Department. It's not technically his, but own State Department, who have all these letters of dissent and these petitions rolling out saying uh, that most of them are under 35, saying you're on the wrong side of this, which to me is crazy. Here is Rashida Tlaib, cut 16. I know I've seen the stats. I mean, the polling shows the majority of Americans, over 65 percent of Americans, including 80 percent of them being Democrats, want a ceasefire. They are also horrified, horrified that our president is calling is calling on Congress to find more bombs that are being dropped on innocent civilians. Our movement for ceasefire is only growing stronger. I say this all the time, consistently to my colleagues. When they tell me that folks are coming to their offices, I said, it's not me. It's your constituents. Senator Ted Cruz joins us now. That is uh, one of the members of the squad, Rashida Tlaib, who was just censured. Uh, Senator, welcome back. It's amazing the pushback the president's getting from his own party, his own staff, the State Department that Blinken heads up. Uh, as well as there seems to be an Iranian uh, Iranian sympathizer at the Pentagon pushing back against the MEK, the uh, the dissident group. Senator, your thoughts about this issue? Well, Brian, good morning. Good to be with you. Look, this issue is a manifestation uh, and a graphic manifestation of, of the central phenomenon I talk about in my brand new book, Unwoke. How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. This is cultural Marxism that we are seeing. The rabid anti-Semitism, the vicious protests at university campuses where, where Jewish students are threatened. They're afraid to go to school. Just this week, Jewish students at, at, at MIT were prevented from going to class by rabidly anti-Semitic mobs. The Jewish students reported they feared for their lives. And, and the reason for this, what my book Unwoke explains, is how the radical left seized control of every major institution in America, from universities to K-12 through education to journalism to government to big business to big tech to entertainment to science all across the board. And, and in the view of the cultural Marxist, the world is divided between victims and oppressors. And Karl Marx argued for the violent revolution of the victims. For him, the proletariat, it was the working men and women overthrowing the the owners of capital. Mm-hmm. Well, today, the cultural Marxists, they look at the Middle East, and they have defined Jews as the oppressors, and they have defined the Palestinians as the victims. And so the cultural Marxists today celebrate yep. the horrific atrocities of Hamas because they are for the violent revolution and overthrow. And it is grotesque. It is twisted. And sadly, it is the heart of today's Democrat Party, as, as you were just playing in that interview right there. So, so, Senator, it's kind of odd for you because you used to debate Democrats like Bill Maher. He yeah. can't recognize his party. He, called, he said for the first time in his life he called out Barack Obama. I was insulted. Barack Obama says well, our hands are all dirty. Excuse me. Don't rope me in with this. Uh, my hands are not dirty in this. And, and neither is most of the people listening right yeah. now. No, that, that, that is exactly right. I was actually on Bill Maher's show just on Friday night, was out in L.A., and first time I've done the show, it was a terrific show. Look, look, Bill is an old-school liberal, so he and I disagree on, on a lot of issues, but he actually believes in free speech. Uh, he, he, he believes that, that 
in in reality, and and so he has the courage to stand up to this woke nonsense. And and you know what when Obama said all of our hands are dirty, what utter and complete garbage. No, Barack Obama sent one hundred billion dollars to Iran. Iran is the lead funder for Hamas. Joe Biden has sent one hundred billion dollars to Iran. Joe Biden and Barack Obama, in a very real and practical sense, funded the death squads that were murdering civilians, that were raping women and girls, that were slaughtering infants. And so, no, all of our hands are not dirty. Some of us were fighting every step of the way, saying, do not give money to lunatics who terrorists who say they want to murder us. If you give them money, they will use that money to murder us. That's exactly what happened. And yet, they're trying to just wash all of that away. Senator, I hear staffs, Republicans and Democrats under 35, White House workers, State Department, uh, they're all uh, on the other side of this issue. And have you found that? The next generation just – forget about Republicans and Democrats. Have you found that they're just not sympathetic to the Israeli cause? Look, it, it is an enormous problem. Harvard recently did polling of Americans 18 to 24 51 percent of young people said that Hamas was justified. And, and, and this is the consequence of indoctrination, what I explain in the book on woke. Chapter one is, is the universities. I describe the universities as the Wuhan lab of the woke virus. That's where it was created. Right. That's where it's mutated. That's where it spread. And our kids in K through 12 education and universities are being indoctrinated. And I'll tell you also, the last chapter of the book is on China, and I explain how China is intertwined with every one of these. And if you look on, on TikTok right now, which is controlled by China, TikTok is pushing rapidly pro-Hamas propaganda right now to young people. They're pushing it aggressively because they want to undermine America. This is a very deliberate strategy. And so this book, Brian, is all about right. laying out specific concrete steps we can take gotcha. to fight back, to take right. the institution and back, would, because we can take it back. And the book's doing great. I was one of your first interviews. Senator Ted Cruz, congratulations on Unwoke. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Go all to right. Amazon, buy the book. All right. <laughs> If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Brian Kilmeade Show here. My privilege to have in studio Mike Pence and, more importantly, Charlotte Pence Bond, authors of a brand-new book, Go Home for Dinner, advice on how faith makes a family and family makes a life. Uh, welcome. Thanks for doing this book, and thanks for coming in, guys. <laughs> Appreciate seeing you. you Whose idea was Charlotte? Is this your, your idea? Um, no, um, <laughs> he came to me and kind of, um, just wanted to talk about it and talk about uh, potentially doing this together. But, um, it, it was, it was really all him. Um, yeah, it's his yeah, thing. I signed it. It was, uh, my, my, my daughter's very modest. She actually has a, a children's bestseller under her belt. She, she I know she was through our families. You know about that. Uh, you're, you're one of my favorite authors. Thank so you I very you, much. I know you follow these things closely. But when I signed a two-book deal, the way it happened was um, uh, a friend a couple years ago said, um, you know, I'm really interested in your autobiography. I look forward to reading that. I like politics. But he said, the story I really want to read is how do you have a family like yours 
living the crazy life in politics that you've lived at all these different levels. Never off. And uh, uh, and and that was where Go Home for Dinner was born. It was we we thought it would be an opportunity to really write a book that. It says, here's how we took our Christian faith. Here's how we put those principles into practice. Here's how we made a priority for our family. And um, with the chance to work on it with uh, with my daughter who lived all those days was a, was a real joy for me, Brian. Cheryl, when did your dad start getting in office? Your whole life he's been in office? Um, no, but a lot of it. Um, and when I was six, I, he ran for Congress um, the th- third time for him, first time for us as kids. Um, so really, yeah, I mean, he was in Congress when I was, uh, first through 12th grade and then, um, governor and then vice president. So it's been, a, it's been a long time. You had to be in two places, right? Two places at once. So literally when you're home, you got to work and you're, you're there, you got to work. Yeah. So did your dad have dinner with you? Yeah, he did. It's not just a good title. Um, he really was home for dinner and we would go into the Capitol, um, uh, building to have dinner with him sometimes, but he really made an effort to be home for dinner. We moved to Washington, D.C., the Washington, D.C. area when he was in Congress so that we could be nearer to him, so he could be at violin recitals and soccer games and things like that. And he really he really was. It really, you know, for us, it was all about making a decision to make a priority for your family. You know, people, um, the title was also born back when I was in Congress, back when we first met Brian. I People would sometimes come up to me and say, uh, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? It's kind of a, you know, it's implied right. flattery. Um, and and I would always respond the same way. I'd say, home for dinner. Because, I look, I, I never need to be motivated to work hard. I love right. to work hard. I love to see how can I make a difference in the world. But the decision to shut off the computer <laughs> – uh, to get in the car, it's getting uh, harder and harder, and, right? And sit down, put you know, as we say in the book, yeah. put the phone in the dish and and sit down and mm-hmm. and uh, listen to your kids and, and reconnect with your family uh, on a regular basis. You know, we we say that you, a lot of people in the busy world we live in today can't can't be home for dinner every day, but there's a way that you can make time on a regular basis to spend time mm-hmm. as a family, and I think it's a key to really strengthening our nation. You feel good about putting this together? How about your? Yeah. How about the rest of your family? I know your yeah. brother's serving, right? Oh yes, he is. Um, he, it, it it's been great. It's been a great memory, really. Um, I had my first child in February, so that was a big part of this. We were doing the book um, on Zoom sessions, and she was usually <laughs> sleeping, you know, on me um, while we were working on it, and it was a good chance for me to learn about putting your family first. I had to live out the principles in the book while we were working on it because I was a parent and I hadn't been a parent before and I had to put the computer away and spend time with her and put her first. And so that was really, uh, really impactful for me to learn at the same time. And it's not like my dad said, it's not just about being there for dinner. It's about mentally being present too, which is hard getting harder and harder. And so we even talk about that. We talk about strategies for that and how you can make sure that your family knows you want to be with them and you're engaged with them. We try to, we really tried to uh, you know, say th- these are things that, you know, from the time I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I wanted a Christ centered home. Karen and I developed our marriage around our faith, but it's also about being really practical about, about trying to, 
you know, build levees around your marriage. You know, some of the decisions Karen and I made uh, about our marriage got a lot of attention when I was right. vice president, a lot more than I ever expected. But uh, as I traveled because across you said, the country, hey, I, will, I will not I go have lunch with another another woman. Yeah, just not, not dine alone with yeah. a woman that's not my wife. It was a promise we made to each other when we first got married. But that's what when, in the book we say there were a lot of ways you can build levees. Uh, around your marriage and around those most important relationships in, in your life, right. and uh, um, but uh, you know we also just we also try and be transparent about lessons learned along the way. And um, uh, my my hope is that the book is an encouragement because the truth is the American family is in a lot of trouble right now, Brian. I mean, you speak about that often. Uh, right. The the truth is that. Uh, um, in, in many ways, marriage and the traditional family are in free fall in this country. And so as all of us think in these anxious times about what we can do to turn America around, um, you know, our, our message at the end is, uh, um, you know, save your family, save right. America, and go home for dinner. Yeah, um, it's amazing, too, because I'm getting all these emails now uh, with people with their pronouns. And I'm thinking to myself, what is this about? Um, <laughs> how hard was the family decision to stop running for president? You know, I uh, was that a personal decision? It was. Well, for, for Karen and I felt called to run. You know, we spent two years traveling around the country after we left office. And I spent some time with you here in this studio when my first book came out. And uh, we, we were just determined to step forward and, and offer our own um, vision of leadership and a fresh start for the country. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, Brian, it, it was harder to end our campaign in, in my heart and in my mind than it was to start it uh, because I'm a, I'm a competitive person. I'm somebody that thinks, you know, just keep fighting. But as we reflected on it as a family, as we talked about it, we just, you know, the Bible says uh, uh, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And it became clear to us, this is not my time. And so we made the decision to, to step away and uh, – uh, while we were disappointed, we have peace about it. Charlie, were you in on that decision? <laughs> you know, my parents, they they take our advice um, a lot, or they'll listen to our advice, they'll ask our advice, and it's always a family thing that we're doing. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I would say I... I've always kind of been in a lot of positions. I have a, I have a chapter in, in the book about January 6th that I write because I was there. And so I've kind of been around for some of these big moments and as of my siblings, of course, but yeah, I I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting world in politics right now. And I, I'm frustrated with it. I think a lot of people are, but um, you know, I support my parents, of course. Is, Is Trump a word that's not brought up in your house these days? Um, it's not not brought up. I mean, we're as interested in public <laughs> yeah. public affairs as anybody. But Charlotte, again, she's being modest. I mean, back on the campaign in 2016, Charlotte literally traveled 130 out of 132 days with us. Uh, she was in a gap time in her own education, and uh, her brother and sister said somebody's got to be there to watch mom and dad. So she ended up writing a book entitled Where You Go, Life Lessons from My Father, all about the campaign. And the last chapter of this book, Go Home for Dinner, is simply entitled Stay because mm-hmm. while, while I've gotten a lot of attention um, and, frankly, a lot of encouragement from people around the country that we stayed at our post on January 6th when we finished our work, a lot of people don't know that, that uh, my wife Karen and my daughter Charlotte were there at the Capitol and – they also refused to leave. They they insisted on staying. They were there till four in the morning, and uh, she writes about that in a very compelling way. But uh, right. uh, I I love the the chapter that she wrote because it says what whatever's 
whatever is coming at you uh, mm-hmm. and at your family, the first lesson is stay, stay right. together and, and find your way through it together. So, um Mr. Vice President, that day, was that the armed guard that ended up shooting the woman? Were they watching you? Uh, no, not to, my, my Secret Service detail was uh, was connected with me. And, uh, you know, those those tragic events, I think, were separate uh, involved Capitol Hill police and uh, still heartbreaking to think of the loss of life, the injury of to police officers that took place. That Ashley day. Babbitt. Yeah. yeah, and uh, but that wasn't your that wasn't your Secret Service. It it, it was, and our, our we were, you know, I was evacuated from the floor of the Senate that day, and as I write about in my previous book at some length, and Charlotte writes about it in her chapter of this book. But we were evacuated to a small office just off the Senate chamber. But uh, as Charlotte recounts, I was. Uh, uh, I, I didn't want to leave that office next to the Senate chamber, and the Secret Service was telling me again and again, we've got to move you out of here. And I looked at them at one point, and I said, you're not hearing me. Uh, I'm not leaving. Um, I was just absolutely determined in my mind yeah. to stay at my yeah. post, do my job. And it was Charlotte that <laughs> intervened with the Secret <laughs> Service agent and said, is there is there somewhere else we could go in the Capitol other than right here? And that's... <laughs> well, trying to find a compromise because I was I knew he wasn't going to leave and I knew the Secret Service she knows her dad. needed him to leave. And so um, he wanted to stay at the Capitol building. So I just asked, is there somewhere at the Capitol that we can go that you guys, you know, we would be happy with and we would be safe. And so there was. And wow. so they, they took us down to the loading dock where yeah. we stayed the rest of the day. So you're out there campaigning. You said yeah. almost everything was positive. Oh, it was a great experience. Yeah. You know, I I love what uh, I just I, I talked to Tim Scott yesterday, who also went through the, a tough decision uh, to suspend his campaign. He's an extraordinary American and a great friend of mine. Um, but I love what he said on, uh, on Fox News, a Trey Gowdy show, where he said anybody that wants to get a higher opinion of this country should run for president because <laughs> the, our politics are really divided right now. But uh, you, you get out among the American people and um, uh, the, whether they're for you or against you, people are unfailingly gracious and encouraging. They appreciate your willingness to step forward. And uh, with just a few exceptions, we had a we had a terrific experience on the campaign trail. So he said, this is not, it goes as clear as this is not my time. It's not saying down the line he's not going to run again. Right. Have you thought the same thing? Because you're young enough. Have you thought this, just maybe this is not my time? Well, we, we, our, our conviction was that uh, that this was not our moment. This was not our time. But uh, we learned a long time ago never to limit God. <laughs> We've, we're, uh, but, you know, it's a real blessing for me that... that um, that that departing from the campaign trail and from active politics coincided with uh, the long planned release of a book about what matters most to us. You know, if anybody that knows the Pences knows that our our faith in Christ, uh, our family is the most important thing in our life. And, uh, you know, my hope is that uh, that maybe as we begin a new season uh, in our life, that people gain some inspiration and, uh, you know, whatever the Lord has for us, my aspiration will always be to go home for dinner. How surprised are you that President Trump is leading right now by 20, 30 points in almost every uh, state? I, you know, i, I be honest with you. I, when you look at the failed policies of President Joe Biden at home and abroad, uh, the way he's weakened this country, uh, I understand 
people's uh, enthusiasm for the record of our administration, for the president's record. I get it. I mean, America was more secure. It was more prosperous. Um, uh, and the world was more at peace during our administration. I'm proud of the role I played in all of that. Uh, but uh, in in many respects, I think uh, I, I think that uh, some of the resilience uh, of the former president's support is a reflective of how concerned people are about the direction of the country. I share that concern. That was that was why I ran for president, and why in the days ahead we're going to be thinking and praying deeply about what role we might play in helping to turn this country. Around. I will take a time out, talk a little bit more with the vice president uh, and. Uh, his lovely daughter, Charlotte Pence Bond. The name of the book is Go Home for Dinner. A few more minutes with uh, Mike Pence in just a moment. You'll listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, we're back. Mike Pence and Charlotte Pence Bond are here, and their book is called Call Home for Dinner. Uh, and the vice president just made a big decision uh, to not run, suspend his campaign. Tim Scott, over the weekend, surprised Trey Gowdy. He did not know to suspend his campaign. Um, Ms. Vice President, you said everyone's coming up to you asking for uh, an endorsement. Have you thought about it? Well, you know, we, we're, we're taking time mostly to focus on uh, our family and our moving our life forward. Um, I told people the, the only thing harder than um, suspending our campaign um, um, would have been if we just never tried. Uh, you know, I just, yeah. I th- as I said when I announced back in June, Brian, I, I think this country's in a lot of trouble. And I think this is a moment where all of us that have the ability to make a difference uh, have an obligation to try. And um, And so I'm... Uh, I'm glad we ran, uh, but now as we move forward, we're excited about uh, this book because it gives us a chance right. to talk at a more, a more personal level with the American people. People have oftentimes come up to us and let us know they're praying for us and right. encouraged by us. And uh, I hope in this book uh, that uh, with the great work my daughter did on it with me that um, – that, that people will see that it's 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 our faith in Jesus Christ. It's put really right. practically putting uh, our family first, going home for dinner. That's made it possible for us to serve in the way we have. Charlotte, how did you feel about Nikki Haley's daughter being brought up in this? Do you in the debate last time? She's twenty seven, and they said well, your daughter's on TikTok. And other people say, well, you um, you know keep kids out of this. But when you were twenties, are you a kid? How did you feel about that? Um, I think generally, I. I I don't like people bringing up other people's kids. I think if people if kids get involved, then it's fair game. Um, you know, people ask me a lot. You know, oh, you know, is it hard to see your dad talked about negatively? And I mean, I'm a person and a daughter, so I don't like that. But I'm also not a victim. You know, I think that we weren't raised that way. We're raised to you know mm-hmm. understand that if you're in public life, you're gonna be you know, potentially talked about in a negative way, but that's, my dad says, that's what freedom looks like. It means that people can say whatever they want. But I think talking about kids, if, if, if a, if a kid isn't actively putting themselves in the political sphere, uh, I think you should leave them out of it. Just out of respect. Absolutely. And just real quick, how do you feel about your, your husband in the military, knowing that you have the Eisenhower, you have how, mm-hmm. how, how many, how many people are actually deployed right now? Right. I mean, I, you, you know, you always know that um, you could be you know, deployed uh, as active duty. Um, and then, of course, reservists uh, know that, too. I think that um, 
I think I think the everyone's watching very closely. Um, and I think that, um, you know, of course, it, it becomes more real maybe when you have members of the military in yep. your family. But with your brother, um, too. Yep. Yeah. And with my brother as well. But but I think that at the end of the day, um, you you go into right. the military to serve and you understand that you could be called upon any time to do that. Yeah. In, in, in fact, her husband, a lot of your listeners may not know her. We're awfully proud of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. She's a best-selling author and I hope she is again with this book, frankly. Go uh, home for dinner is the her, name of it. Her husband, uh, her husband's an F-18 pilot uh, and mm-hmm. uh, Top Gun pilot, and we couldn't be more proud of him. Mr. Vice President, can you ever see yourself, last question, uh, endorsing the president if he gets the nom- the former president, your former running mate, if you know, he gets the nomination? You know, I do, with regard to any endorsements, I just tell you, we're just going to take a step back, uh, and we're going to listen, and we're going to reflect, and uh, and we're going to pray because that, you know, I love this country. <laughs> Uh, and America is better than we are uh, today, and I'm I'm determined mm. to do my part, whatever that is, uh, t- mm. to get us to turn this country around. Yeah, my hunch, uh, you'll be in an administration or you'll be running again. Great to see you guys. Congratulations <laughs> on Go Home for Dinner. Mike Pence and Charlie Pence, uh, Charlotte Pence, put it out, and they got a great message. Thanks so much for making time for us. Uh, Brian, thanks. The subtitle is How Faith Makes... News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We got a busy hour coming your way. We got Governor Mike Huckabee at the bottom of the hour, Stuart Varney coming up. We'll do a simulcast on FBN. And uh, standing by is uh, Mike Pillsbury. And you know, uh, Mike, if anyone knows more about China, I have not met them yet and about what the president's going to be up against. Um, he's author of the 300 year marathon. He's senior fellow of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we're going to be getting to him shortly. And of course, uh, taking your calls. And tonight, I hope everyone meets me in Connecticut, RJ Julia in Madison. It's one of the best stops. So if you're in the area, I hope to see you. That WABC signal carries far, but maybe uh, hopefully that far. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There was a question of humanitarian. Uh, I, I think they were very clear we can't have a ceasefire. But I don't think anyone argues for a general ceasefire. Uh, that's not going to happen. By the way, the only time we'll have a ceasefire is for the return of our hostages. Yeah, and that's 244-plus. Israel at war, the latest from Gaza, while the Pentagon and State Department discover traitors and adversaries in their midst. This is pro-Israel Americans gather in Washington, D.C., expected to be the largest demonstration ever for Israel. Number two. The president called you a word that because we are live in London, I am not allowed to say on television, but it starts with a P and ends with K. Uh, Your response. Listen, I understand he was irritated because I raised concerns that many, many Democrats had. And again, you know, my feeling is either get out or get going. Uh, That is true. David Axelrod, Democratic strategist. Joe can't do it. And Dems know it. And they have every time he talks about reelection, he gets more bullheaded. Or is he he's empty headed uh, to realize it? The elaborate plan to aid him unmasked. Also, Nikki Haley unveils a plan to KO Ron DeSantis and take on Trump. Number one. Anytime you put on an event, by definition, you know, you you have people over your house, you're going to clean up the house. It's actually pretty frustrating to see that apparently the city that I grew up in was so easily cleanable for the 21 world leaders, but not for taxpayers. Uh, Nice. 
that is Governor Gavin Newsom. And then you have a, a very befuddled constituent and resident of San Francisco. Showdown, a frivolous meet and greet. That's the choice the president will have to finally uh, make when he meets with the Chinese president. He begged for this meeting in San Francisco at the APEC summit, and now he's got it. And by the way, uh, this city is degraded. It has gone into the toilet, and their massive cleanup shows they're capable of cleaning it up. But why don't they every day? With me right now is Ambassador Mike Pillsbury, author of The 300-Year Marathon. Uh, Mike is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Mike, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. First off, how would you approach this if, if if the president came up to you and said, listen, I need to make progress here. You know the current situation between the two countries. You know what they're up to, interdicting our ships, harassing the Philippine uh, boats, and trying to take over the South China Sea. How would you approach this? Well, that actually happened. President Trump had me into the Oval Office at a key point early in the administration, and he wanted to lay out a strategy to how to deal with China. He he did that. Um, he succeeded because he focused on the idea of negotiations and exchanging draft agreements, uh, raising the tariffs to punish the Chinese when they wouldn't come back for another round of negotiations, um, basically threatening them with even worse consequences if they didn't agree to a certain text. What's happening with Biden is the opposite. There are no negotiations going on. There's a uh, there's an opportunity they had to get the trade agreement phase two going again. They didn't. They couldn't do it. The Chinese just cold shouldered them at every turn. They started. They tried to get talks going about the South China Sea and uh, a maritime incidents. It's called. The Chinese refused that. Uh, there's quite a long list where the Chinese just looked down their noses at Biden. And frankly, what we're going to see tomorrow, it's pretty obvious already from the New York Times. A lot of huge companies tech titans from Silicon Valley and, and Wall Street companies are coming to a huge dinner with Xi Jinping where you've got to pay up to $40,000 a seat. So this is becoming an invest in China uh, seminar or celebration. It's, it's overshadowing uh, what Biden's trying to do, which apparently is have some kind of arms control talks and agree not to have uh, artificial intelligence inside nuclear warheads. This is a pretty big stretch because there'll be no verification for it. So I would say Biden is not doing what his advisors are telling him, whereas Trump did do and was successful with what what his advisors told him. It's a a huge difference, Brian. Also, they mentioned he said you're going to restrict the precursors to fentanyl and sending it to Mexico. But we have no proof and leverage to make them actually do what they said they're going to do. That's right. The whole thing gets back to the old uh, Ronald Reagan phrase, trust but verify. Uh, in, in Reagan's arms control agreements and other presidents as well, there's always a verification. Teams actually flew to Utah, to, to in Russian teams, to inspect whether we were building more or less missiles than we were allowed. We got to fly into the Soviet Union and inspect missile production uh, in one of their key factories. The Chinese are, are laughing at us when we raise this kind of issue. There's been a couple of leaks already, Brian, from the Chinese side, not the American side, but what they're trying to get out of the of the meeting, the so-called four-hour meeting, they have a joint statement that they're trying to get the Biden side to sign off on so they can announce some sort of progress. But they can't get agreement on the Philippines. They can't get agreement on incidents in the South China Sea. They can't get agreement on Taiwan. So they're going to be left with some sort of goodwill uh, joint statement. I think people will just laugh at. Biden also risks his reelection on this. If he makes a big mistake, 
um, not necessarily falling down. But let's say he makes a big mistake and calls Xi Jinping my friend or t- starts talking about what he has in the past, that he has more hours of contact with Xi Jinping oh. than any leader in the world. What if he relapses into that and the public is already at sort of 60 percent do not trust China, see China as the major threat? It could be. It could cost Biden votes in key swing states. So he has a lot at stake here, and and being cool, and even cold towards Xi Jinping, treating him in, at a distance, and then making sure this joint statement really is solid on the things America wants. That's what's at stake for Biden in, in this so-called four-hour meeting that they've promised this morning. This will go to four hours, four hours in length. So the other thing is, I don't want to bring it to, you know, neither you nor I are doctors, but it doesn't take much to see the president call the vice president, the president yesterday at the at the uh, at the uh, honoring the the Las Vegas hockey team. They you yeah. don't have to see him wrestling with the wreath ceremony. He didn't know where to go. Uh, you're seeing his everybody knows how we fell on stage. How do the Chinese interpret that? Oh, obviously, they see him as weak. Um, they don't seem to want Trump to come back <laughs> and get tough with them in real negotiations. So their concern is they're already getting they've already leaked a huge story on Friday that the four cabinet secretaries Biden sent over have already made a series of secret promises to China that we will not seek a new Cold War. We will not have confrontation over Taiwan. It's quite a long list. It's if it's true that this is what Biden's been doing, then it's quite a bit of appeasement has gone on in the past year just to get this meeting. So that would be the embarrassing problem for Biden. What if the Chinese leak their account of the meeting afterwards and basically say he was weak, we got what we wanted, uh, we've lifted the export controls? Uh, what they really want from us the most, Brian, is more investment, more high-tech investment, whether it's in the military side in China or or AI or other areas. And that apparently is on the table that Biden's going to approve continuing American investment in China, which already is in the it's over a trillion dollars. It could could be even higher. So that's what's at stake in these talks. And of course, they they make these old joint ventures and they take the technology and later kick the guys out. Right. Yes, that's an old trick. They got exposed by President Trump that they've got a systematic approach where they rip off a company's intellectual property and then they replace it to drive it out of business in many cases or force it to come to terms. This is the source of Chinese power over the last uh, at least 30 years. Is they, they used to be zero Chinese companies, Brian, on the Fortune 500 list of the biggest capital companies in the world. Now China dominates in the top 100. The top five banks in the world are Chinese banks. So their system has worked beautifully, but it requires an American president and, frankly, the Congress, too, to go along and allow this investment to increase. But that's what's happening. Here's what Bob Lighthizer said, cut six. China is more aggressive than they have been in decades, and they're a real threat to this country. And unfortunately, this administration and this president do not understand that. Their policy is 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 not in the national interest from a national security point of view, certainly not from an economics uh, point of view. So he's really worried. He doesn't get into the cognitive state of the president, but he's really worried. You worked with him before. Yes. I have the highest respect for Bob Lighthizer. He was the implementer of the negotiations. He's the guy who had the text, and he would notice when the Chinese would renege or when they would use an ambiguous term that had to be cleared up. 
Uh, it's all in his book called No Trade is Free. He gives a very almost hour-by-hour hour account of how tough the Chinese were in the negotiations. But Trump was onto them. That's why he could get the agreement. The Biden team so far has not announced any trade talks have started. <laughs> They've wasted almost three years now. So Lighthizer is quite correct. Um, I also think it's important to point out that China doesn't seem strong economically for them. I mean, we hear about their unemployment for young people. We hear about real estate has basically collapsed. They have had deflation, and they still have not gotten their their economy up and running since the pandemic that they foisted on the world. What do you know about their economic situation and their possible vulnerability? Well, we learned a lot in the trade talks with President Trump because one of their key reformers was the head of the Chinese delegation, Mr. Liu He. He wanted reforms, and he wanted to use Trump's demands to urge reforms back home in China. But he's been replaced by a guy who's a kind of a hardliner on the economy. And from what little we know, it looks like Xi Jinping himself manages economic growth and the economy in China. And his first priority is the Communist Party rule continues and stability. His, it's only his second priority that China's economic growth go up. But they've got enormous reserves. So if he wants to pump money in and boost his growth rate, he can do it. They just World Bank just raised the growth uh, rate forecast for next year a little bit, almost to 5%, which could even be twice what we get. We don't know our total GDP for this current year. But the Chinese economy is personally run by the Communist Party. That's the takeaway. So if they want to really boost their growth, they've got the reserves. And Brian, they've got nearly $3 trillion with a T in foreign exchange reserves they can draw on to boost their economy. So far, they're not doing it. Yeah, I, I think they just overbuilt their whole country for, the, for a declining population. And there's just nothing else to build. Uh, that's the problem that their self-inflicted one-China policy produced for 40 years. They had this idea that there'd be four or five uh, billion Chinese if they didn't have a one-child policy, and including forced abortions. So they've given that up now because they realize they're going to have a country with only old people <laughs> and no young workers and no social safety net. This is the nightmare they're they're facing, and that's why they need so much American investment American technology. They need Biden to give them the green light tomorrow that they can continue or even expand using American economic investment and technology to boost their own growth rate. Leslie, That's been you, their story for 30 years. If you think that they don't want Trump back and they see the polls and they do, do you think they'll make him look good and try to give him some wins to help him? You know, you would think so. Using an American way of thinking this is their chance tomorrow and, and, and Thursday to boost Biden's image and to say he's not a part of the Biden crime family. We didn't bribe him or his son. <laughs> You'd think they'd try to help him. On the other hand, they are communists. So it's not necessarily that they'll do a common sense uh, approach right. like that. They could, in fact, try to undermine Biden, make him look bad. That's That's what I think the Biden team is very worried about. Mike Pillsbury, with a lot of experience with years with China, to give a great forecast and preview and uh, some of our uh, mutual fears about what could take place over in San Francisco. Mike, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. I'll mail you a free copy of 100-Year Marathon. All right. That would be fantastic. Yeah, you guys should all pick it up and find out what the Chinese approach is. All right. When we come back, I will open up the phones and also get your comments. Go to briankillme.com. And you can comment, uh, click to me, and it comes right to uh, my email. Also, let me urge you to get Teddy and Booker T, uh, two American icons. 
uh, blaze a path to racial equality. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The president called you a word that because we are live in London, I am not allowed to say on television, but it starts with a P and ends with K. Uh, Your response? Well, he wouldn't be the first, I guess, in my many years in politics. Listen, I understand he was irritated because uh, I raised concerns that many, many Democrats had. And again, you know, my feeling is either get out or get going. So David Axrod saying that we all know that, uh, but you don't you hear it on the left, especially with people that served with Joe Biden, who are friends with Barack Obama. A lot of people think David Axrod would not say it if Barack Obama didn't believe it as well. Came out four or five times, wrote it, tweeted it, came out four or five times and said that Joe Biden shouldn't run. He's just too old. And yes, it's true that other Democrats and other Republicans have been behind at this point while in office and have bounced back to win, like Barack Obama. The problem is you can't fix old and failing, as we watched with the wreath ceremony. He brought it up. Now you have this story, just devastating story by Jonathan Martin, that essentially says nobody inside the White House thinks Joe Biden can do the job. They all don't want to let him talk in front of the camera. They all don't trust him to pull off any event. They all don't believe he could go out and campaign. Now they're talking about different surrogates helping him have a Rose Garden campaign, never leaving the White House, have everybody speak for him. Jonathan Martin does this thing I've never really seen before, goes out and gives him a whole uh, list of ideas of how to run if you're Joe Biden. Have Bill and Hillary Clinton work on the Middle East. Have the Congressional Black Hawkers fan out uh, Cory Booker Senator Warnock, and just support you and try to reconvene people of color and tell them how great Joe Biden's work is. Dump the word Bidenomics. Nobody buys it. So when Axelrod comes out and says it, backed up by Tim Ryan the next day, you realize people are getting panicky because he's losing to Donald Trump. Also, they've already upped the ante on Trump. I told you, and you probably figured it out on your own, that they were going to vilify Donald Trump. But it's so beyond opposition research. Already, starting last week, he was Hitler, according to Hillary Clinton. Over the Yesterday on MSNBC, he was Hitler about comments he said on Sunday. This huge stretch. Here's what Tulsi Gabbard said about the way the Democrats go, over to go after Trump. Cut 12. In one breath, they talk about defending democracy. And we heard Jen Psaki on MSNBC saying, you know, if you elect Trump, you're going to undermine the rule of law and throw his political opponents in jail. Look at what they are doing right now. And the American people aren't stupid. They think that we are and that they can just get away with this. But I think the American people are seeing exactly what they're doing, that the Democrat establishment is going after Trump because they're afraid of him. And they cannot challenge him on substance, whether it's the economy, securing the border or foreign policy and the issues of peace and war. So when she went over and met with Trump, she got such blowback from her own party. And that was the beginning of the end for her. Uh, plus, he was looked at an upcoming star when she called out Hillary Clinton. They basically took her leadership position away. Now she's an independent. I am sure if Trump wins, she'll be with the administration. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we come back. Governor Mike Huckabee uh, will be joining us. Would he join a Trump administration if Donald Trump won? By the way, Speaker Johnson made it clear he will endorse President Trump. Fast 
is three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There was a question of humanitarian. Uh, I, I think they were very clear we can't have a ceasefire. We have a ceasefire. It means uh, that it's a surrender to uh, Hamas, it's a surrender to terrorism, it's a victory for the axis of terror. That doesn't mean that we can't give, you know, in a specific time, in a specific place, for a safe corridor for Palestinian civilians to leave the zone of fighting. Yeah, we do give them the ability to do that. But I don't think anyone argues for a general ceasefire. Uh, that's not going to happen. By the way, the only time we'll have a ceasefire is for the return of our hostages. Without that, it's not going to happen. And then we'll continue until the battle is won. That is Benjamin Netanyahu last night with Sean Hannity. Joining us now is Governor Mike Huckabee, uh, Huckabee former Arkansas governor. Uh, and we appreciate him joining us now. Governor, um, your take on the prime minister. There is a pause right now. But, you know, you know, the da- you know, the danger of uh, of letting Hamas live another day, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that Israel can afford to uh, slack off. They have got to continue marching forward and taking away every single piece of real estate that Hamas has uh, stolen in Gaza and has abused it. Uh, And it's not just for the sake of the Israelis. I hope people in the world will start understanding that the gravest danger to the Palestinian people is Hamas and these terrorists. They don't care about these individual citizens. They don't care about the kids or the families. They may pretend that, oh, the Israelis are doing horrible things and it's genocide. No, it isn't. What the Israelis are trying to do is protect the civilians, keep them out of harm's way. But Hamas continues to push them right in front of every one of their targets so that they will have civilian casualties. That way they can whine and blame the Jews for it. The fact is Hamas could end all of this. The the last Palestinian civilian uh, accidentally killed would no longer be killed if Hamas would let go of all the hostages, surrender, and finally recognize that they have no right to continue to do the atrocities that they've done to the Jewish people of Israel. So you know what's amazing is that the lack of support among the next generation of Americans, even in Washington, on all sides, uh, on all branches, Axios is reporting they obtained a scathing memo signed by 100 State Department and USAID employees suggesting that Biden continued support of Israel uh, has made him complicit in genocide. Biden. Some of the memo's language echoes the progressive activists of the U.S., like you see the squad, uh, it says, uh, whose anger and protests over Biden's handling of the war have been apply, uh, rippled through the Democratic Party. So it's ripping their party apart. And then we hear about the de- uh, defense, uh, uh, the same thing with the Pentagon, and then staffs among the congressional aides under 35, all anti-Israel. I did not see that coming. Did you? No, I really didn't. You know, and I do understand that within the State Department, they've always had this uh, sort of an avenue of dissent in which people in the State Department as career uh, diplomats are free to express themselves to the leadership. And sometimes they express their disagreement with policy. That's not unprecedented. But what I do think is uh, unfortunate is that this gets leaked to the public. So now what we see is that within our own State Department, we have a whole lot of people who are supporting the uh, Hamas-led revolt against Israel. That's disturbing. And you wonder, why are these people taking that position? What is it that causes them to think that the slaughter, and I mean the massacre of innocent children and elderly people and the violent rapes of women is something that Israel should just stand back and say, 
well, they shouldn't have done it, but, you know, we're going to have a ceasefire and we're going to just let bygones be bygones. The best meme I saw, Brian, was uh, one of Emperor Hirohito saying on December the 8th, 1941, okay, now that that's over, let's have a ceasefire. I'm pretty sure that America wouldn't have said, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's just call it a day. And you know what Prime Minister Netanyahu brought up? And he said, when you guys bombed Berlin, do you think any innocent people died? With what You had to what, rid the world of Nazism. I don't know. When we dropped the atomic bomb, do you think some innocent people, non-combatants, died? How about when we dropped two there, of them? Uh, well, when's yeah, the last time? I, I'm not happy about it, but we just would yeah. like to win the war. Well, you know, we know that several hundred thousand people who were completely innocent in Japan uh, died from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the calculation was that if we didn't drop that bomb and end the war, there would be even hundreds of thousands more, perhaps into the millions, both on the Japanese and the Allies' side, that would have died in an extended war had we had to go into Tokyo and fight it street by street. War's never pretty. Look, let's be real clear. There's nothing wonderful about it. Uh, it's like the old song from the 70s said, war, what's it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. And that's kind of what we have to look at. It's always a disaster. It's terrible that innocent people get killed. But let's put the blame where it belongs. In World War II, it was the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. It was the Holocaust going on in Europe. And now it's because Hamas is a terrorist organization that used every dime and dollar that could have given food and jobs to their people. Instead, they built bullets, bombs, and bunkers. And the result is uh, they decided to go after innocent people and slaughter children and put babies in ovens, rip the bellies of pregnant women, and uh, violently rape women in front of their children. And then they want us to treat them gently. I don't think so. That's got to be eradicated. That's an evil. It's not just a, a, a crime. This is a level of evil that comes right out of the bowels of hell itself. You, how many times have you been to Israel? Uh, probably over 100. I mean, I've been going. Yeah. This year, 1973 was my first trip. So this year marked my 50th year of going to Israel. And, you know, I've gone so many times it's easy to lose track. But uh, I was just there in August and was there before that in February. And I uh, was supposed to be there again uh, next month and again in next February. Not sure about some of those trips, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a wonderful place, and people need to recognize that it's a tiny little land. Here's the thing. The Jews represent 0.2% of the world's populations. I mean, there's only 16 million Jews in the entire world, 7 million of them in Israel, a little over 7 million in the United States, the other 2 million scattered across the world. Why are the Jews such a threat that you would have a desire for people in major cities to be screaming from the river to the sea. Let's get rid of all of them. I say let's stand with them because if, if we pick on and allow uh, a small minority of people to be targeted for termination, then it's not going to be the end of it, and they'll be coming after the rest of us at some point. So uh, we can't do what happened in World War II where people looked the other way and said, I'm not Jewish, it doesn't matter. We need to have the attitude, we're all Jews around here. 
and we will stand together. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. It's blurring party lines. As I mentioned, the president is the president's getting blowback from his own party, the State Department getting uh, blowback from their own party, presumably. And then you have Deborah Messing, who's a huge lefty, going to be speaking today at the rally, along with guys like Van Jones. And then you have Alan Dershowitz, an avowed Democrat, also uh, can't recognize his party. And then you have uh, a lot of the Jerry Seinfelds of the world not recognizing Hollywood silence. Can't explain it. Uh, Bill Maher taking on Barack Obama. I, I find that makes this much more interesting to think you got to think for a second. Don't just go with your party doctrine is what's bet. What is the right thing to do? I'm struck by that. What strikes you? Well, it's the same thing, Brian. It's it's bizarre in that the Democrat Party right now seems to lack moral clarity when it comes to the massacre of children and elderly people and women. And that should be a uniting force, right. irregardless of people's political party. When you have a blind hatred toward the Jews, uh, as some Democrats seem to have, and you cannot separate um, the atrocities that have been inflicted upon them from whatever angst you have about Israel as a country or Jews as a people, mm-hmm. then you just wonder, what's happened to our culture? We're talking about a de- definition of civilized people. This is not about the politics of the yep. left or right. This is civilization versus barbarianism. So right now, looking at the Republican primary, uh, goodbye, Tim Scott, one of the great guys. Mike Pence was just here. He sure. is now out. Um, who is the main threat, do you think, to the former president of the United States? Honestly, I don't see one. I, I don't see anybody that's uh, going to be able to unite all of those non-Trump voters to an extent to defeat him. I mean, what has to happen is all of them would have to s- circle around one candidate. And I don't see uh, any of them surrendering their position and saying, you know, uh, I dislike Donald Trump so much that I'm going to throw my support to DeSantis or Haley or Vivek or uh, Christie or whoever's left. Uh, Trump has what appears to be at this point an insurmountable lead because unlike the support that you've got for DeSantis or Nikki or anyone else on the stage, um, it's, it's a support that's there, but it's not as rock solid. What you have for Trump is that the Trump supporters, they won't be moved by anything. Right. Uh, rock right. solid, 100% sticking with the president. I got it. Uh, Governor, I look forward to being on your show. Governor Mike Huckabee, thanks so much. Have look a great day. Brian. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. I'm going to get to some calls after I do the simulcast with uh, Stuart Varney, uh, which is going to be interesting because we're not only talking about uh, we're not only talking about uh, what is happening with this political story that talks about Joe Biden not having any believers on his own staff, let alone other Democrats and 538 coming out? You know, those uh, the 538 people coming out saying, listen, Joe Biden should get out if this is indeed the case, how they feel. So let's listen in. 
continues and it's in very strong shape, up five points, uh, 500 points for the Dow, 300 for the Nasdaq. 10.51, Kilmead time, here he is. Brian, take a look at this op-ed in the Washington Post. Biden shouldn't run. The Democratic field is stronger than you think. Brian, I can't imagine what's going on behind closed doors as they try to get him out, because that's what they really want to do, right? Stuart, I think you can imagine, because it's exactly <laughs> what people on the outside are watching the president screw up a wreath ceremony, are watching the president call the vice president the president yesterday during a hockey ceremony celebrating the NHL uh, reigning Stanley Cup champs. They're seeing the president fall. They're seeing him have trouble getting out a sentence, even if it, we don't even know if his thoughts are clear. He is not allowed to speak to the press, it seems. His own staff does not trust him, according to this political story, to deal in an unscripted situation, not even on presentations. So his whole campaign will be about staying at the White House and letting people like Rahm Emanuel come back from Japan and campaign for him, the, black, the Congressional Black Caucus, try to reconvene the black vote and to just take on Trump and have everybody, including their, uh, their compatriots in the press, rip apart and make President Trump unacceptable, unelectable. And you know what? We've seen it already, Stuart. Last week, Hillary Clinton called him Hitler. I think he was called Hitler 13 times because of two lines from a speech the other day that lasted over an hour in front of 30,000 people. And then they come ahead and they're doing it again. They're doing it with the court cases. They're trying yeah. to stop his opponent while acknowledging they got a bad client. You got that right. Uh, John Kirby was asked why America is not escalating the conflict with Iran. Watch this. What is President Biden waiting for? Is he waiting for Americans to be killed before he takes substantive action that will actually give Iran pause? John, as you just saw over the weekend, we're, we're certainly willing and able to take your retaliatory strikes uh, to protect our troops and our facilities. We're not looking to escalate, but if they continue to attack our troops, if they continue to put their, their lives in danger, we'll continue to take action to do what we have to do to, to protect that. Nobody's looking to, to, mm -hmm. for a, a war with Iran, but we absolutely have a viable mission in Iraq and Syria to go after ISIS, which is still a viable threat. All right, Brian, come on in here. Should we be taking a much more aggressive stance with Iran? Success leaves clues, and the clue with Iran has always been strength. Strength and willingness to use our muscle. You notice that every time we hit back, we give a statement that we will pick the time to choose. Well, they've had 54 times to choose against us. They've hit us four times since we hit them on Sunday in those two locations in Syria. Most of the hits are going in from Iraq, coming against our guys. We have not hit there. I guess there's a concern about destabilizing the Iraqi government. But at some point, you've got to stick up for your men and women. Over 50 have some type of TBI because of the explosion and concussion, yeah. even when the missile defense does their job. Of course we should show strength. But we always end it with the qualifier, we're not looking for conflict. I have news for you. Your opponent is. We have given this Defense Department $900 billion. Use it to defend us because they're coming here. And that is pretty clear. I just don't understand what this administration's thinking. Uh, mm. You brought the muscle there. Why aren't, why aren't you using it? I hear you. Brian, thanks very much for joining us this morning. And I turn to Steve Hilton, who's still with me. Glutton for punishment coming up to the end of the hour. All right, one I mean, you see this report, too. The other story is, in a poll, Gavin Newsom's going to be debating against Governor Ron DeSantis November 30th, right on our channel. Now, Gavin Newsom comes out, and, you know, he is 
uh, presiding over this whole APEC summit. It is his state, not it used to be his town, and it's a mess, and he just cleaned it up. Head-to-head, though, with President Trump, believe it or not, he loses. So he loses to Trump. Biden loses to Trump. So the only way to stop Trump, it seems, with all the problems and the unorthodox approach that leaves somebody like him open to criticism, is to put him in jail, bankrupt his company, hurt his brand. Right now, the civil trial is going on downtown in New York City. This is the defense, but we know it's fruitless. I talked to Andy McCarthy today on the air on Fox and Friends and says, look, this is done. I I would stop talking because they might be able to use some of this stuff in the appellate court when they try to redo the case. A couple of things have to happen. They're trying to get him on the civil trial, find him $250 million and take away his business certificates. Essentially, in their dream world, Letitia James, they would put the uh, Trump Plaza, Trump Tower. They would put the downtown Wall Street property that he has, and they would put it in receivership. So what he's got to do immediately go to the appellate, whatever decision they make, and it's going to be guilty, minimum $250 million fine on what I just mentioned. So they're going to go to the appellate division. After that, there's another appeals court. And uh, Andy says the further up you go, the less political they are. So that's the hope. When you have an attorney general sit there and watch testimony on a civil case, knowing the city is overrun with anti-Semitism and attacks to the point where the governor has got to dispatch more state troopers and more detectives and more FBI to stop the would-be next attack. And you know illegal immigrants have to term, have come through. 130,000 have come through. 70 are still around. You have places that are being overrun right now where people just sleep on the streets. They tried to set them up in housing and get them jobs so they're not looking for jobs. More buses coming on a daily basis. You see crime running rampant. Do you know over the weekend, yesterday, uh, they uh, had a cop go down try to bake up a fight and he got beat to a pulp or brought to the hospital. Thankfully, they arrested the guys. With all these issues... With so much to be charged, you know what she does? She goes after the NRA publicly, and she goes after the former president because it was a campaign pledge. Thanks so much for listening. If you have to leave me now, sadly, I'll see you tonight. If you're in the Connecticut area, R.J. Julia in Madison, uh, Connecticut. Then I'll be going down to the uh, Patriot Awards over in Nashville. I'll be hanging out, having a great time. Go to BrianKilmead.com. See where I'll be signing in Tennessee as well as Alabama. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Here we are at uh, straight up in the final hour of this show, unless you're watching it out of order, which could happen, or listening to it out of order. Mary Catherine Hamm at the bottom of the hour. Steve Hilton is here. We're following a, a lot of things. Number one, we're following what's happening uh, in Washington, D.C. We're uh, between 60 and 100,000 pro-Israeli uh, supporters who's going to be gathering with a series of speakers that are going to blend party lines. Deborah Messing, a left-wing actress, will be speaking. Van Jones, obviously Democrat, worked for President Obama. He'll be speaking, crediting conservatives for keeping uh, students, uh, Jewish students, safe on campuses or at least uh, backing them up. And then we're going to see the Speaker of the House also amongst the speakers. I think it's about time we see some pro-Israeli movements out there. Um, we're going to talk about that also 2024. If you've seen this political story, talked about uh, Jonathan Martin, talked about how almost nobody believes that 
Joe Biden is up for re-election, including his own staff. And then we'll talk about what's happening with President uh, Xi meeting with President Biden tomorrow uh, in San Francisco. And they cleaned up the city. Steve Hilton, I have to tell you that. the West, You live out in the West Coast. I know. I've seen you, it. You know that. And now San Francisco has been hosed down, cleaned up. They haven't stopped the crime. They haven't put uh, food on the shelves at supermarkets, but they cleaned up the streets. Exactly. This is exactly the point. So very nice that they Great finally did that. It's good to be here. Escaping the All madness right. of this ridiculous summit. And they've, they've put up walls because they know that walls work Fences. when it comes to their thing. Um, they've cleaned up the streets. They've got the homeless people moved on. They've done all that. But what they can't do practically overnight, exactly as you say, is deal with all the other problems. You've got the crime out of control, the, the highest taxes in the country, the worst business climate, the worst literacy in public schools in California, on and on and on. Every single thing where you want to be top of a list, we're at the bottom in California. And every single thing you want to be at the bottom of, we're at the top. So, that is going to take a lot more work than cleaning up a city in a few hours. So listen to the San Francisco resident. I'm sure you could echo this, how she feels about the sudden cleanup of her city. Cut four. It's actually pretty frustrating to see that apparently the city that I grew up in was so easily cleanable for the 21 world leaders, but not for taxpayers. Um, So it's just something that is very fascinating. And I thought that the walls don't work, but apparently it works. They're putting up fences everywhere. um, And with these fences, you can't even see the abandoned, vacant um, storefronts that were brought to you by liberal policies. So you could hear that, Steve? Yeah, Yeah. of course, she's totally right. It's an absolute insult to everyone in the city. So for years, they've oh, these are really intractable problems, and it's very complicated because you've got the mayor and the board of of supervisors, and exactly that. You can't force people to do what they don't want to do, and they're just living their lifestyle choice and all the rest of it. But it turns out that when you have a dictator in town, you can do it practically overnight. It is a complete insult. So let's talk about the summit itself. Uh, we have President Xi. The one thing that they've told us already that he's going to agree to get rid of the precursors of fentanyl that he's been shipping. They've been shipping over to Mexico. Uh, no way to enforce that. No leverage to see it. There's no inspectors that are going to witness it. But that's what they're going to do. Evidently, talk about missile defense is going to be another element of it. Okay. Uh, I don't know what kind of verification there. And then I found out from Mike Pillsbury, a guy you're familiar with. He says that the big story and why President Xi is probably here is they're meeting with all tech sector executives at 40000 a plate that President Xi is. Exactly. So he's going to be able to get business. He's not worried about the four-hour meeting with President Biden. Exactly. And by the way, just think about that, what it means that, that one of the – they call it deliverables. I've worked in the government. This is what they call it. When they've got a meeting like this coming up, they want to show that there's some output. They cook it in advance, and this is a deliverable that he's going to do something about fentanyl. What does that tell you? That he admits that they've been causing the fentanyl crisis in America that's now been going on for years. So he's been doing nothing for years that is completely outrageous. That This agreement admits that right. on Xi's part. And I also – he gave verbal agreement to Trump on that. He said, yeah, let, let me crack down on that. He goes, can you stop the precursor from going to Mexico where they sell it to the cartel? He's like, yeah, let me get on that. And he didn't really get on that. Of course, nothing. And that's what's so outrageous. And, and at the same time, they're trying to say, well, let's have a sort of you know cooperative relationship with this guy who's been poisoning Americans. That's He's been doing nothing while that's happened because he's – liked to see it happen because he wants to undermine us. Steve, isn't there a risk in a high-stakes summit like this? Because if you don't walk out with anything, if you uh, call him my friend, if you refer to 
uh, because it's so clearly their rivals if we're not uh, enemies. If you go back and look weak, this could be it for your reelection. Well, look, the thing is that we know that Biden um, is weak and they can sense that just through the policy choices that he's making. He can easily have a humiliating moment in the summit, and that's embarrassing and so on. But for years now, ever since this administration took office, they they have seen through the policy choices of this administration that they are not prepared. They don't don't face on the other side of the table someone who's going to stand up to them and call them out and actually fight back against – and going back to the point about the tech – companies, someone who's just completely happy to see America's leadership in all sorts of sectors just be you know, dribbled away and put in the hands of China. They see that now. They see the weakness. Here's uh, Robert Lighthizer uh, about the stakes. Cut six. China is more aggressive than they have been in decades. And they're a real threat to this country. And unfortunately, this administration and this president do not understand that. Their policy is 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 not in the national interest from a national security point of view, certainly not from an economics uh, point of view. So he didn't want to touch the failings of the president, obviously, cognitive failings. But he said, I'm really worried about what's going on right now. He's never seen it as bad. Yeah, exactly, because you've got you've got China increasingly belligerent, right? They're, they're making not just economic moves around the world. They've been doing that for a long time, militarily in the South China Sea, and they're taking advantage of the global situation. They're buying Russian oil. They're buying Iranian oil. Effectively, China is funding these wars that we're um, now uh, rightly focused on in terms of the uh, invasion of That's Ukraine. That's where we should be focused, and, not buying and, Iranian and, oil. And Hamas and Israel, and, and China's... China loves this kind of global instability because it sees an opportunity to advance. That's what it's doing, and they do not sense on the other side of the table any kind of strong pushback. I heard that part of the reason why the administration is letting Iran sell oil like this is because they want to keep the price well, down. Exactly. And to keep the price down here, rather than us produce it, he'd rather keep that it's oil an on the market. Outrage. It, and this is the total – it's not just the complete incoherence of their um, – what they call their climate policy, their energy policy. It is just so offensive. Venezuela, they're, they're, too. They're, they're, they're risking these massive national security effects in order to pr- protect some myth that they're dealing with climate. You see it at the state level in California. They're, they're laughably – Gavin Newsom goes on and on about leadership on climate and so on. So they're shutting down California's energy industry. We have big reserves of oil and gas in California produced very cleanly. They're shutting it down. doesn't mean we're not using any. What's actually happened? In the last 20 years, California's imports of oil and gas have gone from 12% to 50%. And that's the actual consequence of these policies shipped around the world. By the way, these oil imports, the the most polluting form of transportation on the planet, these giant tankers, that's what they're using as a fig leaf to pretend that they're doing something about the climate. All right. I want to talk uh, in the next block about uh, about the war in Israel. But I do want to talk about that story in Politico that just Jonathan Martin put it out that talks about how almost nobody on Joe Biden's staff believes in him, how they are afraid to have him speak do interviews, conduct an event, and how angry he gets quickly to the point where they mock him behind his back, how determined and bullheaded he is to run for another four years, and how he used a expletive to describe David Axelrod for calling him out uh, for saying that he should really think twice about running again. And it starts, well, you'll hear it. Here's Axelrod's response to the expletive thrown his direction, cut seven. 
the president called you a word that because we are live in London, I am not allowed to say on television, but it starts with a P and ends with K. Uh, your response? Yeah. Well, he wouldn't be the first, I guess, in my many years in politics. Listen, I understand he was irritated because uh, I raised concerns that many, many Democrats had. And again, you know, my feeling is either get out or get going. So many people feel as though he doesn't do that if Obama doesn't want him to. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's interesting about this. And it goes all the way back to 2020, a lot of this stuff, because this, this is what happened. The establishment decided that they couldn't risk Bernie Sanders, that they thought he would lose to Trump. They got behind Biden. They knew his weaknesses. They thought it doesn't matter. In fact, it's perfect to have someone like that because we can run things and he can be the figurehead. And that's fine as long as he can just about pull it off being the figurehead. But now they're seeing he can't even do that. He can't even do the basics. And so that's what they're worried about. They're now going to have to hide him all over again. And the other truth that's being revealed by this is what I've said all along about Joe Biden. He's not something he's the one that he's probably the least impressive person to be in the Oval Office in American history. This guy is a total mediocrity. He's done nothing in his career for 50 years. He's plotted and schemed to get to the top by doing whatever it takes, by going with wherever the wind is blowing in his party. No principles, nothing he wants to achieve. He just wants to be president. And that's why he's clinging on, because he loves being president, not doing anything, just being there. So as you know, center left Nate Silver does 538, that big polling outfit, says this. If Biden can't keep up with the schedule of a typical sitting president running for reelection uh, for it, or it's prone to make errors, which he does, voters in the media are going to notice that. And Biden will uh, will wear his 80 plus years like an albatross around his neck. And he went on to say that my uh, view as of the last six weeks ago was it's probably just too late to replace him. But as Biden's polling gets worse, his approval ratings are near the lowest ever. I've been increasingly hedging on that. Democrats would be taking a huge risk by replacing Biden, but they are also taking a huge risk by nominating him. There's no getting out of this. Your political instincts are great. Your experience is vast. What do you do? Well, I think they're not going to do anything because what are their choices, right? It's too late to have a primary uh, because the deadlines have passed. That's not going to happen. So the only choice is to somehow persuade him to step back. He's not going to do it voluntarily. Jill Biden isn't going to let that happen either. They're both determined to stay there. They have to push him out. Let's say they push him out. What do they then do? They can use the convention. That is true. At the convention next summer, they can find some way to nominate someone else. But just who are they going to go in the back room right, and but, just forget yes, about but, Democratic voting? Think about what they have to do in order to achieve that. Either they have to. Uh, give it to Kamala Harris, who would be the natural person because she's the vice president. They know she'd be a disaster. What they're actually then going to have to do is push out a black woman in favor of a white man, someone like Gavin Newsom. And do you think that this Democratic Party obsessed with identity politics can stomach doing that? Of course not. I don't take it personal, but I think white men are the worst. <laughs> exactly. Uh, got to uh, get rid of them. Right. I think uh, we should kind of marginalize them. When we come back, I want to talk more about this, but also Israel's at war. For some reason, that's a, it, picking sides is very controversial in Washington. And I'm not kidding. For Republicans and Democrats, their staffs, from the State Department, Defense Department, their staffs are divided on Joe Biden's long-held policy, which has been the American pro, pro-Israeli policy, has been the American policy for decades. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers, hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
Look at the protests uh, that have happened around the country, the protests that are going to happen in, in uh, Washington this week. Um, you look at the very strong feelings that this issue has, has uh, uh, aroused in the United States and around the world. Of course, that extends to inside the, the State Department where people have um, very strong, strong opinions. I won't comment on any dissent memos, but he has spoken uh, in the past about how he welcomes the dissent channel and thinks it's a very valuable channel. Well, we'll see about that. I mean, yeah, there's a dissent channel. Yeah, there was a lot in uh, there was a lot in Afghanistan that were totally ignored. They've been in place in the State Department since Vietnam in the 70s. That was Matt Miller talking about how many people in the State Department you could transfer that to Congress, Republicans and Democrats, and the White House who are upset about the president's pro-Israeli stance. With me still is Steve Hilton. That was Matt Miller. So he's saying no big deal about the dissent, but it's got to be disturbing for Secretary of State and you know, yeah. the support of the masses. He, what he just said there is total BS, frankly. The dissent channel – I've worked in the, in the government. I've been a staffer. I've seen this from all the different sides, right? The point of the dissent channel is, to, is, to, is for senior um, civil servants to be able to express their concerns about the practical implication – of a policy, yeah, and uh, the, when it's really serious in terms of, of, of they think of mistakes being made, some kind of expert view, not to just vent about their political opinion on the on the issue of the day, it is completely outrageous. You see, all these staffers in Congress and across the, the administration, virtue signaling, going out there, signing these letters and all the rest of it. No, I'm sorry, if you've lost the argument, if your political bosses have taken a particular course and you don't like it, resign. That's the way to do it. I mean, that is why. You talk Secretary of State Pompeo, and he felt like an outsider in his own State Department. I mean, they didn't really want to hear it. A lot of times they work against you. Totally. Exactly. Because they have this very strong view that they are there to protect the national interest against these here to what they see as the here today, gone tomorrow politicians. That is the, completely the culture inside the uh, bureaucracy. And that's why it's got to be dealt with directly. That's why, by the way, in the presidential election, that's why Trump is right about what he's saying. Vivek Ramaswamy, the same. They both understand the threat to democracy. We hear endlessly about the threat to democracy. This is the real threat to democracy. The people vote for something and the bureaucracy is sorry, you can't have it. We're the ones that make the decisions. So they say that uh, the Palestinians need a homeland. Uh, They say that the, the, the bombing of Gaza has got to have humanity. It's got to be stopped in many cases. They say, without offering a specific example, the memo accuses Biden of spreading misinformation. Oh, for goodness sake. In his October 10th speech supporting Israel, one of the signatures addresses of his presidency. As I mentioned, Van Jones is going to be speaking there today. Deborah Messing, left wing, hates Trump, going to be speaking for Israel today. The president for Israel with, the, with some measures, not good enough. No, but by the way, guess who's not speaking today? Who? President Biden, yeah. Vice President Harris. I mean, what Nobody. else is, you know, they're not there. And so you can. What else and is what Harris we, doing? Um, exactly. That's exactly the point. The, her only job, as far as I can tell, is like if the president can't do OK, maybe he needs to go to San Francisco to, you know, prepare for the Xi meeting, whatever. I don't see why he can't fly out after um, the, going to stand, stand with Israel, whatever. Even if he can't do that, that's the point of having a vice president. The fact that neither of them are there is a complete disgrace. Yeah, the Speaker of the House uh, will be there, and we'll see where it goes. How much pressure is going to go on Prince Netanyahu 
if the bombing continues and the invasion continues, what's this going to look like a week or two from now? Well, I think that he is actually doing a pretty good job. He did a, a big media round in the last few days. I think he's doing a very good job of explaining where they're at. His tone, it seems to me, is very different from some of the belligerent tone we've seen in the past. I think he's calm and setting out Israel's strategy. And I think you see it on the ground. So there's, there is less of the bombing. I mean, that's that is completely now shifting to the ground operation, which is more methodical. It is lower key, mm -hmm. and they're encircling Gaza. If you look at what they're doing, it is a change. And you can see, as far as I can tell, I'm not a military person, a, a clear strategy being implemented here. You know communications, and now what they did is they brought reporters with the IDF, and they show, okay, take a look at this children's center. Look at this tunnel. Exactly. Look at this mosque. Look at this tunnel. Look at this house. Seems nice. The commander lives here. Solar panels. Great. You know what this is? This is the electricity from the solar panel going into the ground where we find a tunnel. In those tunnels are the command headquarters of terror. You don't have a choice. They're under the hospital. They're bringing an incubator, so they're doing a little bit better of a job. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that it's incredibly important that they do that because winning the war of public opinion is important. Now, what they're up against is total brainwashing. Right. Um, and, and people who just won't accept the facts because it doesn't fit with their ideological narrative that Israel's the bad guy and Hamas are the good guy, which is absolutely astonishing that we're even in that situation, but that's where we are. Steve Hilton, the good guy. There you are. I agree with that. Very <laughs> much so. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. As for the ceremony at Arlington Cemetery, that's not Joe Biden's first rodeo there. He's laid that wreath there many times before, but I guess he doesn't remember what he did the last times he did the same thing. Look, unless Joe Biden gets younger between now and Election Day, Joe Biden's got a lot of problems coming up. Yeah, there's no kidding. I mean, you're having trouble with the hockey ceremony. You're having trouble with the wreath ceremony. Then you got to go maybe have a debate. I'm fi I figure they'll find some way to get out of the debate. Who knows? But he's got to go out on a campaign trail and do maybe two or three events a day. And the problem, just read the political story. It's very easy. It's very easy for people that don't want to see Joe Biden reelected to find something to write about. But it's pretty alarming when it turns out almost nobody on his staff thinks he can do the job again outside his family. And he, had, he, he responds with the expletives when people come forward like David Axelrod, like Tim Ryan, like Van Jones, and indicate that he probably is not up for the job anymore. But you heard Steve Hilton. Steve Hilton is indicating they really have no choice. Guys like Chris Coons will always be backing them, but in terms of the reelection, they're in trouble. Donald Trump in front. A couple of things. Uh, I see Nikki Haley on the channel right now doing a, the voice of the voters. That's fine. But she evidently is trying to go after DeSantis and spread him out. And here's what I mean. They think DeSantis, and they're right. They're putting three full-time staffers, uh, high-ranking staffers, into Iowa. They think DeSantis is Iowa bust. So she's trying to say, I am not only Iowa, I am New Hampshire, I am South Carolina, says he is nowhere in South Carolina. She's not even looking at Trump right now. She wants to run DeSantis out. DeSantis, to about three days ago, called for her to step aside, says, I'm the, I'm the prominent one. I'm the only one with the legitimate shot. So that's a little, uh, that's a little different uh, than we thought. Okay, so a couple of things. When we talk about... Uh, when we talk about uh, what Britt Hume was talking about yesterday, and that is, and what I was discussing this morning 
on Fox and Friends and yesterday on this show was as Joe Biden gets more scrutiny and he's not able to stand the spotlight because of his policies, his demeanor, his age. And he just diminishes before your eyes. They're going after Trump in a way they never went after him before, already talking in the most extreme fashion possible. He's on a civil trial today. Don Jr. is there. Listen to what Britt Hume breaks it down because they're starting to look at Donald Trump and not say the best Republican. They're saying this. Cut 11. Well, I don't see Hitler and Mussolini. We had four years of Trump. We didn't get Hitler or Mussolini out of it, um, although he behaved in a way that was, you know, many people thought, reprehensible and unbecoming a president. But you notice there, Brett, the thing that struck me was he always gets around to complaining about that stolen election. And he has campaigned basically on that for a long time. It hasn't hurt his support uh, in the Republican Party, but in a general election, uh, I think it would be harmful to him to keep talking about that because it's too little, too late, uh, and, and and most people don't believe it. Right. Um, and But people want to normalize Donald Trump. They don't want to normalize Donald Trump. They don't want Van Jones to go over and talk to Donald Trump and talk about how great he was on criminal justice reform and how many Democrats and Republicans came together on criminal justice reform. Now, Trump's way of criminal justice reform is a lot different than we're witnessing now in these cities and these states of zero cash bail. It was being able to reduce sentences from people like Alice Johnson, who made some mistakes in their 20s, were going to spend the rest of their life in prison. So let's bring in uh, Mary Catherine Hamm, outkick columnist um, and a great commentator on everything politics, although so much of what we're witnessing now, we've never witnessed before. Mary, welcome back. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. We were just discussing, it seems, the abandonment of Joe Biden by people in his own party and his anger because of it. Do you, in all your years of experience, can you imagine people bringing up LBJ deciding not to run for re-election? Can you imagine any scenario where Joe, but from what you know, from Joe Biden just saying, you know what? I hear the critics. I'm gone. I'm out of here. So I look, I think it would probably be better for their party if he stepped aside and let somebody else do this, uh, although there are costs to that as well. But here's the thing. Joe Biden has wanted to be president since he became a politician, and he became a politician like 85 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. But he was in his 20s. He was in his 20s when he became a politician. He's been running for president ever since. He is now finally president, and he's an incumbent, and he thinks he's doing well, right? And you're telling me that that guy's going to step aside barring some health incident? I don't think so. Right. Unless they think a meeting with Barack Obama – Hey, Joe, do you have a second? You want to sit down on my couch? The guys have been talking. We want you to go. But he is actually the more powerful guy right now than Barack Obama, isn't he? Well, that's the thing. The party has a lot of power, and I'm sure the party would like to come up with a solution for this. They have also painted themselves into a corner because Kamala Harris is the – is the successor, right, the logical successor. And for all the reasons of their woke ideology, they can't – they have trouble passing over this historic pick – to run. But the problem is she's not good at her job. Uh, she's possibly worse at it than Joe Biden is. And she's not a compelling political figure. And she actually doesn't attract the groups that they thought she would attract when they checked the, the identity boxes um, because she's not a compelling figure. So 
that's the next person in line for them. So avoiding her, it's a, it's a real tricky thing to get around all of this and appoint who, I don't know, uh, you're going to pick Gavin Newsom, the, the white guy from California who has ruined uh, that lovely state <laughs> during the past four years um, and is currently cleaning it up for the Chinese communist dictator. Sure, sure. I guess that guy would be next. He can talk at least. Right. Uh, but you know how, and I mentioned this earlier with Steve Hilton, how bad white men are. So we are the worst. And haven't we screwed up enough uh, for (laughs) generations? So, well, and here's the thing is like in their party's way of seeing things, in fact, that does become his problem, right? It's like, well, you don't check any of these boxes. You're the, you're the governor of a large state uh, and you can put sentences together, but we can't have you at the top of the ticket. So uh, I'm fascinated. Nikki Haley's right now on the channel, and you know her campaign is now going to invest ten million dollars in advertising across Iowa and New Hampshire uh, for the final week of this month. The goal is to see her if she can overtake Ron DeSantis and then right. get him to South Carolina, and, and her being the solid alternative to Trump. Yesterday also came out that Jamie Dimon met with her and has been very impressed with her grasp of the economy. DeSantis, in his move, has dispatched three top aides over to Iowa. He's Iowa a bust. And I just asked the vice president, former vice president, Mike Pence, what has to happen to be a legitimate alternative to Trump? He says you have to win Iowa, even though so many times you don't win Iowa and get the nomination. What do you think, Mary Catherine? Yeah, no, I think Iowa is so, so important to Ron DeSantis because I don't think the road gets easier for him after that, right, Um, unless you make a splash there. I think he's a good fit for those voters. I think he's been doing what's necessary. I think he has an operation on the ground. I think it's interesting that Nikki Haley is going more all in on Iowa than, say, a New Hampshire, where I think she could be a very nice fit for the more, uh, shall we say, like suburban collar yeah. voters, a little bit more moderate temperament um, in a New Hampshire, where if she could knock out Christie and others in that state could do her a lot of good and then she gets to go home right that's that's a big deal for her so that that makes iowa very important for desantis and i'm a little surprised that she's playing there more than she is in new hampshire it traditionally mary catherine do you believe that if you don't win your home state for example rubio said i'm going to beat jeb bush in florida and ended up he couldn't yeah. beat trump in florida so if you don't win your home state if you're nikki haley are you done then or if you're competitive you wait for super tuesday or nevada I think look, consolidation is really important to the party. If if you want a, a head-to-head with Donald Trump, which I think the voters deserve, right, uh, then I think consolidation is important. And I think you, if you don't win your home state, then, yeah, you have made – this is a statement that perhaps you're not viable. Now, but she's been very, very good on the debate stage, and she has bought herself all this uh, time, and she has bought herself credit. Uh, she has earned this, right? And there's no there's no saying that that wouldn't play – in South Carolina as well, where she where she is from. So if, if you can, you were at CNN for a while, you know, yeah. do you think on some level they are dying for Trump to get the nomination and maybe on some level want me to be president because they wouldn't have to program anything else? I think uh, many of our friends of the uh, left persuasion uh, and many of whom work at CNN uh, are, of course, uh, that certainly that is a bit of a, a lifeline. Like it, it, it was programming for a very long time. Uh, he remains a very good, frankly, TV character. Right. Um, and I think you see it this week. I've been uh, occasionally tuning in and seeing the story is nothing but him using the word vermin. 
right? That's the big story. Yes. And uh, I just think when there's like, you know, the equivalent of a Klan rally or a Nazi rally on every Ivy League campus once a week, perhaps him saying a word you don't like isn't the major story, right? That shows some bad news judgment to me. And it shows that I think, like, I think all these prosecutors probably want him to be the mm-hmm. nominee because I think they think he's easiest to be. So I'm watching John Meacham talk with Joe Scarborough yesterday. They called him fascist and a Nazi. Hillary called him Hitler. What, it, what I think it does, Mary Catherine, it takes those undecideds and it yeah. takes the suburban women who left and came back, uh, who came, were there and then left, make them go, wait a second, this guy will ruin the country. He will make it a dictatorship. Unless I'm wrong, I, what do you think, being that so much about Trump is unprecedented, including yeah. this comeback? I don't think anyone thought if you indict the guy four, four times, give him 91 charges, he'd be stronger while sitting in a courtroom trying to fight for his wealth. I mean, if I told you, you'd go, no, he'd be ruined. He'd be last. Yeah. No, I, I think your point is is well taken. It's real. The problem is that everything that is helping him in a primary hurts him in a general election, and it hurts him with exactly those voters that you're talking about. Um, now, you can try to run without those voters, but I don't think you will win. You won't win a purple state like Virginia. Uh, you won't win places like Pennsylvania in these suburban collars uh, like Bucks County around Philadelphia, right? You need those suburban, college-educated women who have been turned off by the Trump years. Now, uh, somebody, a figure like a Yunkin was able to win enough of them back to win this state uh, that I live in, and I was thankful for that, right? But it's a very precarious balance, and I do not think that under all these indictments, he is capable of earning those votes. I also don't think he has signaled that he's interested in earning those votes, right? That is a problem for, for those who would like to see Trump win. He has to find a way to appeal to different sets of voters. He has to find a way to win. And if you think you won last time and you don't need to change anything, you will not win this time. Great point. And, and what about the, the other wild card to this? Joe Manchin going with no labels, Cornell West leaving the Green Party, doing what right. he wants. And then you have Jill Stein with the Jill Green Stein, Party, yeah. right? Then you have RFK doesn't, is not going anywhere. So if I give you those four people, and, and Manchin will probably be a ticket, probably be a ticket, yeah. be someone running with him. So you can't tell me for sure how that plays into each campaign if it is Trump, Biden. Right. Look, Manchin and RFK both pull from the population that is dissatisfied with both party candidates, right? Then you've got Jill Stein and Cornell West who pull from the disaffected left of the Democratic Party. And what I know is that if it's a Trump-Biden matchup, it's going to be close. It's not going to be some, nobody's taking anybody to the woodshed. Like, these guys are going to be close, and therefore those un- unknowns are going to be so much more important. And frankly, I think if Manchin forms a ticket, it's going to get a lot of looks from people because you see in polling over and over again that what people do not want is this matchup. So if they have another option that looks real, they may go for it. Uh, Lastly, the shutdown uh, or the lockout or whatever you want to call it, uh, it looks like Ron Johnson has put together a two-tiered plan that will have a continuing resolution that will need two-thirds of a vote from the House in order to get to the Senate, and they seem to want it. There's no cuts in it, but there's no Iraq uh, Israeli funding in it either. Here's what President Biden said, cut 26. Regarding a potential shutdown, I understand that uh, the new Speaker of the House has a proposal that's being negotiated with the minority leader of the House and Senator Schumer and uh, and, uh, the 
Republican leader are also talking about it. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. Apparently there's a meeting today at 4 or 5 o'clock on the Rules Committee, and uh, we'll see what happens. Would you veto the, the latter CR? I, I'm not going to make a judgment on what I veto. What right, I, so saw, I'm sure he wouldn't veto it. So your yeah. thoughts about Johnson doing something that got Kevin McCarthy fired? Well, look, the question was always whether Johnson is going to get more political grace than Kevin McCarthy had. And I think the answer is probably yes, he will, right? Um, that he may be given space to do these deals. He may be given space um, to do what is the annoying but adult move and sort of keep things running along here and trying to make deals. Because ultimately, that's how government works. And I don't love government. I dislike so many things about the federal government. But one of the things it does need to do is pay its debts and sort of keep the wheels moving. I think incrementally, you can make changes to regular order and have the budget process be done in a more orderly fashion. But you can't do that always under the gun Mm -hmm. in this way. So I think him, he has demonstrated by passing at least one other thing out of the House that he is capable of putting votes together. I do think even those who were mad at McCarthy don't want this to fall apart for another three weeks a month, right? So they're willing to give him a little space to do what he needs to do. All right. Mary Catherine Amo, was great to have you on. Uh, You like an outkick? Oh, I'm loving it. We're having a blast over there. It's a fun group of people. Excellent. Uh, Mary, thanks so much. I'll talk to you hopefully on One Nation on the weekend. All right. Talk to you later. You got it. Uh, And by the way, One Nation coming up at 9 o'clock on Saturday night. And you can always get the President Freedom Fighter. I'll have more on that in just a moment. Uh, You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Above all, it shows us that climate action offers an opportunity for the nation to come together and do some really big things. You know, I've seen firsthand what the reports make clear. The devastating toll of climate change and its existential threat to all of us and is the ultimate threat to humanity, climate change. So motivating. Give me a second to calm down. It was very similar to Rocky's speech to his son in Rocky Balboa. Rocky, no, excuse me, Creed One. That's how motivation. That was a great speech. Remember when his son didn't want him to go back and fight again because he was embarrassed by his dad because he had a low education? Maybe he didn't see that one. But that's, of course, Joe Biden before he goes out and meets with the Chinese president. It's going to talk about climate change. How fantastic. That's exactly what the Chinese want to hear. Climate change. And what about the whole thing about trade deals and about tariffs and about backing up the Philippines? And what about our aggression uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia on down? Uh, What about the thousands of Chinese who suddenly are streaming across our southern border and the spies of which are in our schools? No. I would hope that you'd stop with the coal burning. You mean that we're buying from West Virginians? I, okay, fine. I'll do it. That's my big worry, that he's going to talk about climate change. But here's how crazy the world we're in right now. Do you realize among green activists, Joe Biden is not doing enough for climate change? His left flank is open, despite almost bankrupting the country with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. It is open. So that's what he's doing. He's promising $6 billion, which, by the way, has already been allocated. He's saying, I'm going to $6 billion for electric car companies that these car companies are no longer going to make because of the backing of the unions, where he picketed for the unions. And guess what's going to be the first thing to go? Manufacturing electric cars in America. 
You got it. Less people, less profit. No one's buying them at the rate in which they were promised at the price point in which they are. Hey, go to BrianKillMe.com. You can get an autographed copy of uh, uh, Teddy and Booker T. Also, I will see you tonight in Connecticut. And then signing Patriot Awards. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.